Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. Well, welcome everyone. Welcome to Timberline Windsor. I am Donnie Abbott. A special welcome to you folks who are tuning in online. We're so glad that you're joining us this morning as well. Well, this morning, we are going to venture into the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. We're finally getting out of Mark chapter 1. It gives you an idea that, um, you know, we spent three weeks in Mark chapter 1, so that gives you an idea of how long this series is going to last. We'll probably spend three or four weeks in each chapter. Now, a couple of quick things to keep in mind about Mark. And this might be review for some of you, but for others, it will help to get you caught up with Mark. First of all, Mark is the earliest written gospel of what's called the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they share many of the same stories, but they're often told from a slightly different point of view. And we all get this. If three of us witnessed a car accident and were asked to write down what we saw, the common thread amongst all three of our accounts is that there was a car accident. The differences would be how each one of us recounted that accident. We would all probably bring different details to our writing that the others may have missed. So that's, that's kind of the synoptic gospels. The other thing about the book of Mark is that the word immediately is used often. Mark is a very fast-paced book, and he uses the word immediately to get to the point. Mark doesn't have a lot of fluff to his writing. It's also interesting to know what's happening in Mark's world as he's writing this book. The big thing that's going on is that Rome is in complete chaos, and the persecution of the church has become more and more intense. The great fire in Rome happened in 64 AD, and Nero, the emperor at the time, he blamed the Christians for starting the fire, and it was the fire that caused widespread destruction. And the book of Mark was written just a few years after that fire, written in between 66 and 67 AD. And by that time, the emperor Nero, he had just killed himself, and there are several Roman generals who are sort of vying for power. So there's a lot of political upheaval that's taking place. And Mark, he interjects into all of this the first line of his gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of of God. Now, this was a very bold statement, a controversial statement, because the Roman emperor at the time was viewed as a deity. The Roman emperor, following in the line of Julius Caesar, was viewed as the son of God, and it is with him that the good news for the world has its beginning. So for Mark to open up the the gospel by proclaiming, no, 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 Jesus, 
is the son of God, not the emperor. Wow, that is a bold statement. All right, so that's a little bit of background on the gospel of Mark. So let's dive into chapter two. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Now, whenever I read about cities or towns in scripture, I don't know if you're like me, but I always wonder, where are these places, right? I, I've never been to Israel, so I'm constantly wondering, where, where is a place like Capernaum? Well, Capernaum is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's early in Jesus's ministry, uh, but as we just read, he's already creating quite a buzz. Keep in mind that Jesus was not the first, nor was he the last person to say that he was the Messiah, the promised chosen one of God. The difference with Jesus, of course, is that he backed up what he said with actions for all to see. And these actions could not be denied. And because of these actions, we call them miracles, Jesus created quite a following, as you could imagine. To put it in modern day terms, if he were on social media, Jesus would be what's called an influencer. He was turning heads, he was making waves, gaining, gaining followers and controversy. And he really couldn't travel anywhere without drawing a crowd. And going back to chapter one, you might remember that there were several instances of Jesus drawing crowds. In Mark 1, verse 27, after Jesus relieved a man of a demon, news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Soon after, in verse 30, Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law, and afterwards, the whole town gathered at the door of where Jesus was staying. And then in verse 45, after Jesus heals a man with leprosy, we learn that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So it should come as no surprise that by the time we get to chapter two, it's standing room only in this house where Jesus was teaching. Verse three, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man, lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now there's a lot going on in this passage, isn't there? The first thing that jumps off the page to me is the word faith. Now, nobody uses the word faith in this passage, but it is lived out by the paralyzed man's four friends. Now, just think for a moment. Just think about all that went into getting this guy up on the roof. I mean, how hard would that have been? Now, we don't know how far they traveled, but carrying anybody 
on a stretcher for even a short distance is a lot of work. And now they arrive at the house and they face their first obstacle, which is a crowd. And this is a good lesson for all of us to pay attention to. Faith will always have obstacles. Faith will always have obstacles. But the question is, what is faith, right? I mean, it's kind of like this this intangible thing. Well, fortunately, the writer of Hebrews gives us an answer of what faith is. He writes, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. There will always be something between you and what you're hoping for. But faith keeps pressing on. And that's exactly what these four friends did. These guys were confident that Jesus was the guy to help their buddy. So they take their buddy up on the roof. Now, first century roofs were kind of interesting in in that they were made of all sorts of different materials with things like mortar and tar and ash and palm leaves and straw were just some of the ingredients that they used to create roofs. So these guys, in their desperation and with faith as their guide, they dig through all of this to make a hole big enough to fit a guy on a stretcher through. I mean, how big of a hole would that be, right? Quite a commotion, I'm sure they made. And finally, the four friends, they lower their buddy down to where Jesus was. Now, in this situation, Jesus, he could have responded in a variety of ways. He could have said, hey, uh, nice work, boys. Or who's going to pay for this, right? He could have mentioned a lot of different things. But no, the first thing that Jesus says as he looks at the paralyzed man was, son, your sins are forgiven. If you were the paralyzed man's four friends and you heard Jesus say this, you would have probably been like, what? Wait, wait, wait. No, 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 Jesus. No, see, you see, our friend, he can't walk. So we were hoping to bring him to you so that, you know, you can make his legs work again? See, the prevailing thought at the time amongst Jewish people was that a person suffered sickness because of sin in his or her life or that God was simply angry at that person. But Jesus did in this situation what he often does. He looked beyond the physical needs of the paralyzed man and looked to his more immediate spiritual need. In medical terms, the man's presenting problem was his paralysis. But Jesus recognized that the man had a much deeper problem than his paralysis. And this is what Jesus does for all of us. Our physical needs are vitally important, no doubt. But these earthly bodies that you and I have are only going to last 70, 80, maybe 90 years. But the thing that gives you and I life, our spirit, our soul, will go on and live forever. Jesus was then, and he is now, more concerned with that part of our lives that live forever. That's what Jesus was speaking to. 
This one commentator writes, forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. And it brings the greatest blessing and the most long-lasting results. And whether you and I admit it or not, what we all desire and need most in our lives is spiritual healing that starts with the forgiveness of sins. This trumps any of our physical needs. So by extending uh, forgiveness for the man, uh, to the man of his sins, Jesus illustrated what his most important mission was. And that is first and foremost, his mission then as it is now was to forgive sins. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Luke, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost. That's his mission. Mark continues in verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Conflict has now entered the scene. About two years ago, I sent a baseball screenplay that I had written off to a Hollywood script doctor. And this was a guy who had won several Emmys back in the 70s. He was a writer on popular shows like Little House on the Prairie, The Waltons, and several other programs. So a couple of weeks later, you know, I'm eagerly waiting for my script to come back to me. Finally, it does. I can't wait to read it. And he does what any good script doctor worth his salt would do. He tore my script apart. But the biggest thing that he said my script needed was more conflict. Conflict brings any story to life. And in the Gospel of Mark, this is the first conflict Jesus has with the very people who would end up killing him. In chapter one, he faced a cosmic conflict by being tempted by Satan in the desert. But here in chapter two, he's faced with earthly conflict in the shape of the religious leaders. If you remember when Jesus cleansed the leper in chapter one, Jesus told the leper, go and show yourself to the priest, a teacher of the law. Now, just for a moment, I want you to put yourself in the priest's shoes. You see this guy standing before you who's just been cleansed of the terrible skin disease, leprosy. And this is a guy that you've probably seen around town or most definitely you've heard of him. Wouldn't your curiosity get the best of you and you would want to investigate who was responsible for this leper's healing? Like who heals lepers? Of course you would be curious to know who did this. That's what's happening here. The teachers of the law, they got wind of what this Jesus character was up to and like an investigative journalist, they wanted to see firsthand who this guy was and if the reports about him were true. 
So they arrive at this packed house where Jesus is teaching. They see the guy lowered through the ceiling. And the first thing that they hear Jesus say to the guy is, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, as you can imagine, this creates some big problems. So this guy, Jesus, he not only heals lepers, but now he's saying he can forgive sins as well. Everybody who heard Jesus say this knew that there is only one who can forgive sins. And the teachers of the law, they knew immediately what Jesus was doing by saying that. He was equating himself with Yahweh. Because Yahweh is the only one who can forgive sins. So now the fight is on, right? Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your, sons are for, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. (laughs) This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. When Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he was equating himself with God. In the New Testament, when others would refer to Jesus, they would often use the terms uh, either Christ or Lord. But in the four gospels, the term son of man is used 85 times. And 83 of those times comes from the very mouth of Jesus himself. Jesus is accused of blasphemy twice in the Gospel of Mark, and both instances are around Jesus using this term, the Son of Man. So obviously, this is an important term, right? A bit unusual, but what exactly does the Son of Man mean? Well, scholars believe that it goes back to the prophet Daniel, where Daniel writes in chapter 7, In my vision at night, I looked... And there before me was one like, what? A son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. From this passage, it seems like the Son of Man is a pretty big deal, wouldn't you agree? And then if we fast forward to the Gospel of Matthew, who recounts when Jesus was arrested and on trial, Jesus was asked by the high priest, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. You have said it yourself, Jesus answered. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see what? The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming 
on the clouds of heaven. You can see that the language in both of those passages are very similar, aren't they? The religious leaders knew exactly who it was who comes with the clouds of heaven, only the Messiah. And now they're faced with a fork in the road. And it's the same fork in the road that every person alive faces. Everyone has to answer the same question. Is Jesus who he says he is? That's the question for all of us. C.S. Lewis, he once famously said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something else. What you believe about Christ, I'll leave to you. But in this story, we can clearly see who Jesus says he is. We can also clearly see his character. We see his character in that he loves to be with people. Other than when the times when he would go off by himself to pray, whenever we read about Jesus in the Gospels, he's always with people. We can also see that he loves to teach and provide people with insight about the kingdom of heaven. We can see that he loves people so much that he's moved with compassion to heal them. We can see that he stands up for what is right, even in the face of opposition. So, as you think back on the story of the healing of the paralytic, what part of the story do you see yourself in? Which, of, which character are you? Are you the paralyzed guy? Now, perhaps you're not actually paralyzed and that your arms and legs don't work, but maybe you're paralyzed by other things like fear, anxiety, depression, addiction, worry. Or maybe you have some relational issues going on in your life that have caused you to be paralyzed and that you're not quite sure what to do next and how to salvage the relationship. Whatever it is that is causing your paralysis, you're desperate for someone to see your situation and come alongside you, much like the four friends did. Or perhaps you are one of the four friends. You're a person who is filled with faith. We notice that as we read the story, that it wasn't the faith of the paralyzed guy that brought about his healing, but instead it was the faith of his friends. Is that you? Are you a faithful friend? Look for those who need your faith today. 
Or perhaps you're one of the teachers of the law where you're cynical about the teachings and works of Jesus. You might be someone who has a lot of doubts about Christianity, and I totally get it. And I think that's okay as long as you strive to resolve those doubts. Read the Gospels. Research the Bible. Myself, Pastor Patrick, Pastor John, we can provide some resource, resources for you to explore your doubt. It's okay to doubt. It's not okay to remain in your doubt. Or maybe you're part of the crowd. You're just kind of sitting back, observing what is happening, sort of checking things out. The great thing about this story is that Jesus spoke to each and every one of those characters in the story, and he still speaks to us today. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, for joining serving opportunities, and much more, visit timberlinechurch.org connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.